So lately I've been doing this pain slash pleasure exercise where I focus on whatever pain I'm experiencing at any given moment and then I try to dissect that feeling consciously. See, we oftentimes when we feel pain, we slap the label of pain across that feeling, across the sensation without actually sitting and thinking about, okay, well, what is this thing called pain, right? So, for example, today I accidentally spilled boiling hot water on my left hand. I was like getting ready to cook and I was heating up some hot water and I wanted to clean my carrots and so I boiled I had the hot water and the kettle in the one hand and then the carrots in the other hand and as I was pouring it over the carrots somehow it spilled over onto my hand and it was it obviously hurt <laughs> um, but instead of reacting to the, the feelings of the sensation of the pain instead of screaming I actually calmly decided at that moment, okay, I'm going to apply my mind to the sensation that I suddenly felt on that hand, right? And it was, I will describe that sensation as an intense or extreme radiation of warmth mixed with an intense kind of tingling, Um yeah, so that's how I dissected it. I broke it down. It's not just pain, right? It's It was like a mixture of something. So another way to look at it is um, there was this French artist. I don't remember his name right now, um, but he used to paint things blue. And his, he, he loved the color blue. Um, and it was a specific type of like French ultramar- ultramarine blue or French blue. It was beautiful blue. I wish I could remember his name right now. Um, But um, if you Google it, I'm sure you'll find information on him. But he made you look at a color without just dismissing it as the title. Because when you slap a label on something, that label prevents you from looking closer at the thing. If you look at the color blue, like in a painting or or on a wall... From far away, it does look blue, but if you look in closely, you'll see that it's not just blue. There's different shades. There's light blue, there's dark blue, there's baby blue. It's all mixed together. There's white. And so when you zoom in on something, when you bring your consciousness onto something and you focus on it, that label kind of dissipates and you start to see the components that make up the color blue. And it becomes like richer right and um, not as one-dimensional and then it you start to have a better understanding not just of something as simple as a color but the world at, at, at large um, and so that's what I was I was doing you know with this with this feeling anyway moments later I noticed that the back of my hand still felt hot I mean, just as hot as as it had felt when I'd first been burned, which was interesting because the water in the kettle had cooled off at this point. However, and then the water that had spilled like on the counter had also cooled off. And I and I could say that if you take any kind of hot water and you put it on your body in the same amount of time, 
you know, the water kind of reaches a level of homeostasis and kind of, you know, it cools down. Um, because that's what nature does, right? It brings everything to uh, the same sort of homeostasis um, the level. But for some reason, my hand still felt just as hot as it had felt when I had first been burned. And it was almost as if, if I had to sort of anthropomorphize the nerves in my hands. It was almost as if the nerves in my hands had their own brain and they were holding on to the pain of the past. And I thought that that was extremely interesting. It was almost as if the hand had a mind of its own, right? A brain of its own. And it was holding on to like this traumatic moment, even though time had already kind of moved past that moment. And so I thought, okay, well, I got to move past this, right? Let's get past this. And so I waited some more and I kept kind of busy or whatever. Um, but, you know, two minutes, three minutes later, and it still felt warm. It still felt hot. It was like the skin had absorbed, you know, the heat and was just holding on to it. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. It's definitely interesting. So I decided I would turn that burn, the sensation, the pain, into a type of meditation. But first in performance, what I did was I grabbed some mustard from the fridge and I slathered it onto the burn. Now I know what you're thinking. Who puts mustard on a bun? On a bun. <laughs> well, lots of people put mustard on buns, but who puts mustard on burns? Um, well, I do. And uh, if you Google it, you'll uh, find that a lot of a lot of people do actually and it it you know it can save your skin um remember when i said in the past pot in a previous podcast about how there is more than one way to skin a proverbial cat um and i mean that figuratively <laughs> um to mean that there is more than one way to cure any ailment ailment, any disease, right? So to the PC police that are listening, it should go without saying that I'm not advocating that people should skin cats. It's just an expression that's stuck. I Every time I use that phrase, I get at least one email saying, can you find a different phrase, phrase to use? And I, I, I would love to email me your suggestions. Um, but it's just something, it's an expression that I heard and it's stuck and I'm not trying to hurt anybody or hurt anybody's feelings or if you're a cat lover, like I don't have a thing against cat or cats rather, it's just an expression. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, mustard for burns, it works. Actually, side note, so I've uh, been thinking about how we are all like aggressively programmed to do everything only one way right there's only one way to do something in this society right for the most part you know most people feel like if they want to be successful the only way for you to be successful is to go to college get a degree get a job you know do all that that's what we're all programmed except that if you 
do a panel on some of the most successful people in this country and across the world. A lot of them are college dropouts. A lot of them are entrepreneurs. A lot of them don't, you know, they started their own businesses. They don't work for other people. They're inventors, you know. Um, so they didn't take that one path, but it hasn't stopped society from suggesting that that's the path that leads to success. That's the only path that leads to success. And so when a person's, you know, child tells the parent, hey, mom, I don't want to go to college. I want to try this instead. A lot of the times the parents get kind of scared because in their minds they've been programmed that if they want their kids to be successful, they have to take on an inordinate amount of debt um, and send their kids to college um, and pay all this money for a piece of paper basically saying that they have learned stuff that they could have learned on the internet for free. Like if the shutdown has taught us anything, it's that there is no reason for college to be this fucking expensive. And there's no reason why you should force college students to have to go to campus campuses and live on campuses and pay room and board and all of that other stuff when you can literally make all these lectures available online. But anyway, that's a side note. What another sort of, what my primary focus on right now, at least particularly for this episode, is like treatment, right? Like, so say you have a headache. If you tell, if you tell the average person, hey, I have a headache, what they're going to offer you, they're going to offer you pain medication. They're going to say, take a Tylenol. That's it. Right. If you ask the average person, well, what do you do if you have a headache? They will unanimously answer, well, take a Tylenol. If you ask them, well, okay, well, what else? Like, what if you don't want to take a Tylenol? They will probably look at you like you've just grown a third eye. And then they will ask, well, why wouldn't you want to take a Tylenol? All right. There's just the one way. There's just the one treatment. Right. You have a headache take a drug from the store. But my question is, okay, but what the people take for headaches before Tylenol? All right, so check this out. So I decided to do some research because I really wanted to find out. What was there before Tylenol? Turns out that, well, a couple of things. Let's start with this. So Acetaminophen, which is the active ingredient in Tylenol, is derived from chemicals found in coal tar. Coal, like mining, coal, C-O-A-L, tar, T-A-R. Yeah, tar. So the Tylenol that everybody pops when they have a headache or a fever or whatever is actually a derivative from coal tar. That's what we're putting in our body. Anyway, last year, scientists at the University of Wisconsin at Madison found a way to synthesize acetaminophen from lignin, which is a natural compound found in a poplar tree bark. 
poplar tree on the poplar tree yeah that tree um specifically um, and you can read more about how Tylenol comes from coal tar by hitting up the, Smith's, the Smithsonian's Magazine website. Coal tar. Yeah. Anyway, the other remedy for a headache and fever, as you know, is aspirin. So I decided to do some research on aspirin. And it turns out that... Uh, Aspirin is a synthetic derivative of a natural substance called psilocylic, 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 yeah, psilocylic acid, which is the main component of an herbal extract found in the bark of a willow tree, but also can be found in fruits and grains and vegetables. It's also used to treat acne. So there you go, plant-based. So 4,000 years ago, the ancient Sumerians and the ancient Mesopotamians used willow bark extract to treat fever, pain, and inflammation. So did the ancient Chinese, and so did the ancient Greeks. The ancient Chinese also used the bark of the poplar tree Yep, that same poplar tree that the scientists of University of Wisconsin last year have, quote-unquote, suddenly discovered contains acetaminophen. Like, they act like they were the ones who, like, came up with it when the ancients have been doing this for literally thousands of years, have been using barks from trees literally for thousands of years to treat like fevers and colds and hemorrhages and goiters and other inflammations. Actually, Hippocrates, which is touted as the father of modern medicine, he recommended chewing on willow tree bark to patients who were suffering from fever and pain. Um, and then there's this other guy named Dioscorides. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just butchering Dioscorides. I, I, I apologize um, to my new listeners. I, my regular listeners know I'm of Nigerian descent and I was born and raised in Nigeria. And even though I have not much of an accent, I still, if it's a word that I read rather than hear, I will automatically pronounce it pronounce it see I will pronounce it in like a weird way like in a like in an African way um so I I have to hear the 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 word pronounced by like an American and then I I can adapt the word and learn how to pronounce it but considering that I only have read the word I don't know the proper way to pronounce it where you understand it so I will pronounce it as I think it is which is dioscorides um but it's d-i-o S-C-O-R-I-D-E-S. His name doesn't fucking matter. I don't even know why I went into that tangent. Anyway, he also prescribed willow bark as an anti-inflammatory back around 100 B, 100 CE, rather, in ancient Greece. So you can read more about the history of aspirin on Science History Institute's website. So there you go. So... Why is it that whenever you have, like, let's say you have, like, recurring, you know, migraines or recurring headaches or whatever, um, why doesn't your doctor just tell you to take some willow bark extract? 
instead of, I don't know, synthesized, patented, expensive pharmaceutical drugs with crazy side effects like, you know, liver disease and heart failure and all the other and all the other uh, stuff that we hear about, right? If you go to the doctor and you say, hey, I have chronic headaches, um, they're not going to say, yeah, just go on iHerb and get some willow bark extract, even though, as I've shown you, one, you have the scientists at the University of Wisconsin that have decided that they don't, they no longer think that it's a good idea for people to, you know, take coal tar into their bodies. Not because it's fucking weird and also kind of gross <laughs> that we're putting that into our body. Um, and what are the long-term side effects of putting coal tar derivatives into your body? Um, but they're, they're primarily more concerned with, uh, you know, fossil fuels being used um, and, and the effect that it has on the environment. So that was more their drive. It wasn't about how gross it is that we're taking in coal tar into our bodies and giving this to our kids too, by the way. It was more about the environment, which is nothing wrong with trying to protect the environment. I just, I just want you to understand what their motivation was. Um, but clearly these doctors, these scientists understand that plans contain medicinal benefits. However, if I tell you, take a plant, you know, right? Take willow bark. Like say I just started this podcast, this episode, and I said, hey, if you have headaches, go take willow bark extract. People will either stop listening, not my regular listeners, of course, you guys are awesome, but like a potentially new listener would be like, oh, it's one of those people that doesn't believe in modern medicine. Um, No, I'm not saying I don't believe in modern medicine, but it's clear, and at this point, it should be obvious that modern medicine is derived from plant extracts and all they basically do is they they find a plant extract or some aspect of a plant that does that heals the body naturally and then they try to come up with a synthetic version of that plant extract so that they can then turn around and patent that synthetic version and then sell it it's a business so a doctor isn't going to tell you, just go on iHerb.com and, or Amazon, or I like iHerb more than um, Amazon particularly for, uh, you know, vitamins and, and extracts and things like that. Um, but your doctor, your regular doctor isn't going to tell you that because one, they, they, they don't even know about, a lot of them don't know about this. And two, um, they don't get to prescribe you the drug and then get paid, you know, for prescribing you the drug, right? The pharmaceutical drug, the synthetic drug, right? So there's that. Um, on one of my earlier episodes, um, I think season one of the podcast, the, the title was called um, Scurvy, Cancer, and Weed. Um, that was from a couple seasons ago. I had wondered about whether the cure for cancer was something as simple as the cure for scurvy. And if we're not being told about the natural cure 
for cancer because it's something super simple, like a plant derivative, right? And because it's a plant derivative, it can't be patented. And if it can't be patented, then they can't make, you know, billions of dollars off of the cure. So when we're told that the pharmaceutical companies are racing and or searching for a cure for cancer, what they really mean is that they are in search of a patentable and synthesizable synthetic derivative of a natural plant extract that they can then turn around and make big money off of. Like I guarantee you, if scurvy didn't happen in like the 16th and the 1700s, right? So say they skipped all that scurvy, but for some reason scurvy was developed now and all of a sudden like the scurvy was it, 2020 and this is the first time throughout history that we had to deal with scurvy, right? I guarantee you like there would be like 5% of the population, you know, going on YouTube saying, well, I had crazy scurvy, but then I realized that if I ate a bunch of oranges, um, the scurvy went away, bet money that all those, all those people would be either verbally abused on YouTube or on social media or Instagram, right? And called all sorts of names by the masses or worst case scenario, their, their channels would be flagged or taken down, you know, or even worse, right? They would be saying, you know, you're, you're giving people shitty advice and blah, 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 blah. But you and I both know now that what was causing scurvy was, you know, lack of vitamin C, right? And so people back then, they weren't driven, right? Doctors weren't driven by avarice, right? They just, you know, they their motivation was different. A doctor would get paid to come to, you know, come to the patients' homes and treat their patients. And they weren't getting paid, paid by this conglomerate to push synthetic drugs on their patients. So if a doctor found out that, hey, you know, having some oranges would get rid of this intensely. I don't know if you've Googled scurvy. Um, it's insane. It's an insane, crazy disease. And so the fact that the cure for it you know, or or the fact that it was manifested based on like just, you know, a lack of vitamin C is insane to me. And that the cure for something so crazy was something as simple as, you know, oranges, you know, is like practically unheard of. And people don't really think about what that means, you know, in an application to like a lot of the diseases that we're dealing with, you know, right now. But like I said, I guarantee you, if scurvy was a thing that happened now, and they didn't know, the general public didn't know, hey, just just eat some oranges. I guarantee you that the a pharmaceutical company would literally, like, wouldn't tell people, like, just take vitamin C, right? They would rather try, while, while millions of people die from the disease, they would rather try to come up with or search for a much more complicated synthetic form of vitamin C that they could then patent 
and charge like $5,000 a vial for because they are a business. They are a corporation. That's their motivation. That is their motive to make money. Remember how I, I mentioned, I think a couple of episodes ago, and my mom had said that back when she was a kid, they'd used lime juice, lime juice to cure malaria in Nigeria. Well, first of all, I just believed her on GP because, like, she's an OG. So if she says that that, that worked, then that worked. But then today for this episode, I decided I was going to Google to see if there was any sort of scientific papers to back up what she was saying. And sure enough, I found a bunch of medical research saying that um, lime juice um, has anti-parasitic effects. Um, and it's particularly effective um, as a treatment for malaria, particularly during like the early you know phases of the disease. So then my question is that it, why why aren't doctors telling their patients who are developing malaria in these countries where it's still prevalent just drink lime juice you know at the onset of your symptoms right instead they prescribe these you know drugs that kind of have and they're synthetic drugs that have obviously side effects i've also i also read that uh, lemon juice and ginger my favorite uh, is also was also tested and proved to be effective as a treatment for malaria. Right? That's something to think about. And another side note, there is a virologist in France right now who back in February, he put out a video claiming that COVID-19 is not that intense. Um, no, let me backtrack. He, he, he basically came out and said that there already exists a cure for COVID-19. And it's a cheap, generic, anti-malarial malarial drug by the name of chloroquine. And he said it would be very effective in treating COVID-19. But he also said that that drug would not be considered by big pharmaceutical companies because big pharma labs can't make money off of it because it's a cheap, generic drug. In a couple, like I've said about how Trump if you listen to the guy talk, he, people call him a pathological liar. And yes, there are a lot of things that he lies about. But there are also a lot of things that he's very transparent about if you learn to listen to what he said. He said he was one of the first people who retweeted that French doctor's tweet about how there is a cure. And it's this chloroquine. And of course... The media, you know, jumped on him and said, like, you know, this drug is dangerous, blah, 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 whatever. And they attacked Trump. 
I'm not a Trump supporter. <laughs> I know I said I wasn't going to preface, you know, my sentences when I say things that seem like I'm defending him. Um, but I guess I almost have to because I don't want what I'm saying to be taken out of context or seem like I'm just blindly supporting this guy because I'm not. But I am saying that he, he is the president of the United States. He is made privy to a lot of information that the rest of us don't have access to, but he, he leaks. So when he says things, don't just dismiss the things that he says because he's probably echoing to the general public things that he has been briefed on. Like this guy has leaked state secrets like countless times on his Twitter page. It would be almost, it would behoove you to listen to him when he speaks and read between the lines. Now, of course, the media jumped on his back and said that, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. There is no treatment. But of course, you also have to question what's the media's motivation, key bono, right? They, they benefit from dragging this out, right? Because the more people who are stuck in their homes, the more they have things to talk about and um, the more sort of chaos and drama and death that that happens, the more people are going to be afraid and the more they're going to be tuned in. And the more viewers they have, the more money they, they can make selling ads. And they, we, we all know how this game works, right? But now, today, and the reason why my voice sounds like this is because I'm recording this at 12.32 a.m. Um, on April 3rd. Um, it's way past my bedtime, but I, I really wanted to get this recorded because... Um, well, I was just really passionate about, about what I'm talking about, about this topic. It was interesting. So, but as of today, if you Google chloroquine, chloroquine, right? And you check out the top stories, just scroll down a bit. So type in chloroquine and then scroll down a bit to where it says top stories. You'll see that chloroquine is becoming the go-to treatment for covid you'll see several stories where that's what doctors are now starting to use, which is exactly what Trump said a couple of weeks ago. You don't have to like the guy to listen to him. Dude leaks information. He's pretty transparent. And then meanwhile, the other drug that I told you about, Gilead, right, they, the company, is simultaneously now rushing, right? They're not racing to save people. They're racing against the current of chloroquine being used because if this cheap pharmaceutical, um, if this cheap generic drug be- catches on as an overall treatment for, for the drug, I'm sorry, for the disease COVID, then they're drug rem remdesivir or whatever well no one's going to be talking about that anymore right so they right now are rushing towards their late stage trials of what i'm guessing will be a considerably more expensive brand name designer drug remdesivir <laughs> remdesivir or whatever that's the world we're in right now. 
But anyway, um, so off of that tangent, I rubbed some mustard on the burn, which staved off, which staves off blistering and scarring. But I still felt that intense warmth and tingling on my, you know, on the back of the hand that had gotten burned. Um, but I didn't, I didn't psychic, psycho, psychologically, I didn't mentally label that intense warmth and tingling burning, right? I didn't call it in my mind. I didn't say, okay, this is a burn. This is a burning um, sensation um, because what I was feeling was not really a burn, right? Like I said, if you take the label and you slap that label of burn onto a, that sensation, right? Then that label becomes loaded with all the negative and intense associations that come with that word. And it almost magnifies the pain. So I just focused on psychologically, consciously, dissecting the actual sensations that I was feeling. And it turns out it was less of a burn, right? But more like an intense warmth with some tingling. So then 20 minutes passed and the warmth was still there, right? Still prevalent, still intense, Um and I thought, okay, but the accident happened in the past. The, the, you know, the water should have cooled, has cooled off by now. And normally heat on most surfaces would have, you know, reached a level of homeostasis, right? Regressed to the mean, more or less, right? And so I thought, it seems like the nerves in my hands were still, like I said, I'm anthropomorphizing, you know, my hand is having its own brain, but it seems like they were holding on to the memory of that heat. And that was causing me to still feel the pain. So the nerves in my hand were reliving the past in the present, thus causing me to relive the pain from the past. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, isn't that what all of our brains do? Something happens. It's painful. But once it's done, it's in the past. It's over. And yet our minds hold on to it. Right? Our minds will replay that moment over and over and over again. And every time it replays that moment, you feel that same pain, right? You're stuck in this pain loop, imprisoned psychically in the past. I should say psychologically in the past. If you could shift your consciousness out of the past and into your present moment, the pain would lessen and eventually dissipate. But how many of us actually do that? A lot of us get stuck in those painful loops. So we feel we re-feel that pain over and over again. Every time you think about a painful event in the past, it's like going through that same event 
again. And then you feel that same pain again, that embarrassment, that fear, that anxiety, that loss, that depression, that heartbreak. Every time you think about it, you go back to that. And so you hold on to the pain like my hand was holding on to, you know, the pain from the past. And so that gave me an idea. The nerves in my hand, I thought, are clearly connected to a part of my brain that has learned to hold on to the past. It's stuck on the past and it's replaying that pain loop, thus manifesting a continued loop that was bringing on that present burning sensation. So I thought, let me see if I can make those nerves, quote unquote, present. And so what I decided was I I didn't run my hand under cold water. Because then I thought, well, that would kind of flush my hand. It would flush all my nerves and I wouldn't be able to run the experiment that I wanted to run, which was pay attention to what would happen. So instead of running my hands and flushing my hands with cold water, um, and thus overstimulating that hand and the nerves, um, which I know would work. It would definitely stop the heat. But I wanted to try something a bit more controlled, like a more controlled experiment. Um, and so I, I decided to hold on, to grab on and hold on, to squeeze in my hands something that was ice cold instead. And then pay attention to what I felt next. So the burn was on the back of my hand and then I held something cold in the palm of my hand and then I waited to see what would happen. And it was interesting because it was as though the nerves in my hands and my left hand got confused, right? It couldn't simultaneously feel the present cold of the palm, right? That was holding something cold while also feeling the the heat on the back of my hand where the burn had occurred. It couldn't do both. It couldn't do both, so it had to choose. It couldn't feel the pain of the past, which was the heat, and the coolness of the present, which was the cold, simultaneously. So it was as if I forced that part of my brain to let go of the illusion of the past and feel the cool of the reality in the present, the cold. And so with that exercise, that's what finally caused the pain to go away. Isn't that amazing? That's pretty weird, right? I got that idea from reading quite a few books. Um, The first that comes to mind are um, Phantoms in the Brain. And in that book, uh, Dr. V.S. Ramachandran talked about patients who would experience um, like phantom limb syndrome, where even though they lose like bits of their arms, like they get, you know, amputated or whatever, they can still feel their arm present, their hand present, even though physically it's gone. Um, But it's because it was a part of the brain that was still connected and I guess hadn't learned yet that that limb was no longer there 
It's an interesting book. Um, but there are countless other books that tout the health and healing benefits of being present. Right? From books on psychology to books on spirituality to self-help books to books on Buddhism and Buddhist principles. Books like uh, The Telltale Brain by B.S. Ramachandran to The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle to Supernormal by Dean Radin and other books which I can't really think of right now. Um, And all of this really made me wonder how much of the pain that we experience chronically are actually physical manifestations of emotional events in the past that we are all still holding on to, right? I want you to think of the body as a psychic machine because it is. I mean, we're, it's all connected, right? Like the head of a cat and the tail of a cat are not two separate entities. It's all connected, cause and effect. Everything is connected. And so I often ask myself, what will medicine be like in 200 years, like 200 years from now, right? And I imagine it would be considerably different from the medical practices of 200 years ago, 200 years in the past. The problem with medicine nowadays is that, is that it treats the symptoms, right? Not the cause, right? Our medications and our medical system is set up to treat the effect while ignoring the cause, right? But I think as we evolve as a society, more and more medical practitioners are going to have to start addressing the emotional, spiritual, and psychological root causes behind disease. Think about it. If, let's use your car for example. Let's say you you, you go in your car, you start your car, and you have your parking brake pulled on, right? And you take off driving, and so your car starts alerting you. It's beeping, beep, beep, beep. It's flashing brake. Instead of looking around to go, okay, I'm being alerted, right? The, the brake flashing light on your dashboard um, along with that beeping sound, those are symptoms of the problem. Now, if your car went to a modern doctor, what the doctor would do is turn off the light that's alerting you to the, that same break, break, and unplug the sound, the warning system, right? And then he'll go, okay, I fixed it. Or she'll go, okay, I fixed it. And then you get back in your car and you're going to keep driving with your parking brake on. You keep doing that. And eventually you're, you're going to end up with serious problems with your car. But that's the problem. That's what happens when you treat just the effects while ignoring what the cause is. So diseases and expressions of diseases are is your body p- 
pain? Is your body trying to tell you, hey, something's not right here? It's an alert system, same way as your car. So you kind of have to look past the symptoms and stop trying to treat the symptoms and instead try to treat what the root cause is. It's interesting because 200 years ago, doctors were very aware of the psychosomatic causes of disease. But, what, but with the emergence of pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical companies, it seems as though physical expressions of disease have taken precedence, precedence rather, over the organic causes. Medicine has taken a step back as greed and avarice drive our healthcare system. That's a problem. We are supposed to be progressing. We're supposed to be evolving, but it seems like to a certain point we're regressing and not in a good way. If researchers like the doctors at the University of Wisconsin, Wisconsin rather, can take inspiration from ancient Greeks and ancient Chinese medical medicine, medicinal practices and then utilize our modern technology to derive plant extracts like acetaminophen and thus keep us from consuming coal tar, <laughs> right? And instead, you know, I mean, yes, they're synthesizing you know, a plant extract, but it's a whole lot better than a chemical extract from coal tar. I don't know how much better. But if they can learn, if they can look back to ancient Greeks and the ancient Chinese, right, and derive acetaminophen from poplar trees, perhaps we can revamp other approaches from the past other medical approaches from the past too, like behavioral medicine. Like we really do need to take a closer look at how things like stress, anxiety, fear, worry, regret, and other neuroses of the mind causes the body to manifest illnesses from the common cold to high blood pressure, depression, heart disease, and even cancer. This was the approach that psychologists like Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, James Hillman, Alfred Adler, etc. used in the treatment of their patients using tools like Hypnotism, 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 hypno, how do you say that? Hip, <laughs> I'm getting tired. Um, hypnotism, hypnotism, there you go, hypnotism. Yes, yeah, so they would use tools like hypnotism, regression therapy, and psychedelics to get to the root cause of their patient's problems. rather than looking at just their symptoms. Doctors back then also really were more conscious of the fact that people's minds were powerful enough and are powerful enough 
to manifest symptoms. I read, I believe, I, I believe that it was in Phantoms of the Brain. I believe. Um, I have to go back and reread that. But I believe that it was in Phantoms of the Brain that V.S. Ramachandran talked about doctors back in the early like 1900s about this lady. For example, given one example, there was this lady who she wanted a child really badly. And um, she went to the doctor and she said that she was pregnant and she looked pregnant like her stomach was descending was uh, I'm sorry her stomach was distended um her breasts were enlarged physically she looked pregnant but when the doctor went to examine her he realized that she wasn't actually pregnant but the interesting the more interesting thing about that is that um doctors back then were conscious they were fully conscious of the fact of how powerful the mind was and that the the mind is powerful enough to make a, pr- a woman literally manifest a pregnancy, physically manifest a pregnancy or at least the symptoms of a pregnancy just with her mind. That's unheard of today. The, like People don't acknowledge how powerful your mind is today. I mean, yes, there is the placebo effects that, that, that doctors are conscious of so doctors do know and pharmaceutical companies do know that if you give people like sugar pills and you tell them this is a cure, their minds will more or less heal themselves just using the belief in the sugar pill as a medicine. And so the way pharmaceutical drugs work is that that, that drug, the synthetic derivative, has to be just slightly better, and I don't remember what the percentage is, but it's not that much better than a placebo pill in order to be approved as a drug treatment, but it's not by much. So I could either give you a drug, natural drug, or I can give you a sugar pill and say that's a drug, and more likely than not, your body will heal based not on the actual physical components of the drug, but in your belief in the fact that the drug can heal you. And if the drug, the more expensive the drug is, the more likely you are to be healed. If you know that the drug is expensive, that kind of aids your mind's belief in the power of the drug and makes it so that you're more likely to get healed by that. That's crazy. In the story of the pregnant lady, um, what ended up happening was the doctor didn't want to like shock her, so he just kind of went through the motions and was like, "Oh yeah, you're definitely pregnant." Da 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 da. And then as it got closer to the time, he said, "Oh, you lost the baby." And as soon as he told her that, her body reversed the symptoms of the pregnancy. So her stomach went down, her boobs shrank, like all of that. But then two weeks later, she came back and her stomach was distended again and she looked six, seven months pregnant again. The doctor was shocked. And he said, well, what's going on? She said, doctor, you forgot. They were twins. I'm still pregnant with the other baby. That's the power of the mind. You know, I I still keep thinking about how many people are sitting in hospitals right now 
that probably will test negative for COVID-19. However, they still have all the symptoms. They're, they're coughing. They've got the fever, you know, and all the other things that the news have told people are the symptoms, which I also question their motives for telling people the symptoms. Um, but that's just me being uh, paranoid. Uh, conspiracy theorists. Anyway, um, but yeah, I guarantee you a lot of people are in the hospital and they are exhibiting very real, very real symptoms of COVID, but they probably will test negative for the virus. And it would be as a result of the fact that their minds have been so gripped by the fear of this disease that it's actually manifesting symptoms of the disease physically. Just as that woman's pregnancy was manifested because of what was going on in her mind. There's a quote from the Kabbalion that I will leave you with. And like I've said, I'm going to try at some point to do an episode on that book on itself because it's worth diving into. Um, But it says, the quote is, all is mind. The universe is mental. All is mind. The universe is mental. That book is probably derived from writings of like the thousands of years old and modern science is just now starting to catch up with that from doctors you know saying that well you know all the things that you see like watch brain games right they'll show you how a lot of the things that you see and don't see are just it's just constructs of your mind right but then physicists are saying the same thing that what you're what you're seeing isn't really real it's just a projection of a of your mind or interpretation of your mind and now and now i'm telling you and you probably already know that your mind can heal itself right and they call that spontaneous remission but the opposite right of that is not always examined which is can your mind also create disease? Of course it can. If, a mind, if your mind can heal you from a disease, then it clearly can also create that disease. And that should be worth examining. It's something that, as a society, we need to start really looking at doctors, psychologists as well learning not foregoing you know practices of the past but maybe taking things from the past and then improving on them using our present technology anyway I just want to share those observations with you pain is something that happens to us on a daily basis every day The next time you find yourself feeling pain where, you know, either it's lower back pain or sore throat or a headache, before you run and grab the coal tar, (laughs) sit and kind of 
meditate on the pain and, and don't just slap the label of pain on it. Like, break break it down. Like, what is that? Like, what is this feeling that I'm calling pain? Is it like a combination of, like, a tingling? Is it intense? Is it warmth? Is there? Is it cold? Right? Really? Try to understand it. I guarantee you that when you take your consciousness and you apply it to that sensation instead of just dismissing it, it's like I said, when you look at your blue wall, but you zoom in on it, it's not just one color, right? It's a combination of different colors combined into one thing. But when you look closely at it, it becomes something different. When you look closely at pain, when you apply your consciousness to pain, it becomes something different, less intense, less debilitating. All right. I'll leave you guys with that. Thanks for listening.